Welcome to episode one of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? episode on Monday, March 11th, 2019. In just a moment, we'll get into what the Jedi Temple Archives are and how they influence the concept for this podcast. But first, I want to introduce my guest and co-host for this episode, Tom Howell. Tom and his lovely wife, Michelle, are the hosts of the Hyperion Adventures podcast and have been kind enough to have me on their show to talk about Star Wars and the Disney parks. They have also provided a ton of support to get this podcast up and running. Of course, they're also a huge Star Wars fan, so I think they'll bring a lot to the show and to our discussion. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. I really appreciate it, and it's uh, so nice of you to invite me to the debut episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Well, as I always say, it's the least I can do, and I'm all about doing the least I can do, right? <laughs> I've been following your motto as well. I love that motto. Right. Yeah, and obviously, uh, if, you, if anyone listens to the Hyperion Adventures podcast, you will quickly find out that they are the podcast that desperately wants to be a Star Wars podcast. So this way, we're going to make that happen for them. Oh, well, we really appreciate your efforts <laughs> in that regard, <laughs> for sure. Right, right. Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll get into the main topic here in a few minutes. But first, I just kind of wanted to get into a little bit of uh, both of our backgrounds in terms of what our history is with the Star Wars franchise and how we came to it. Uh, for me personally, some of my earliest childhood memories were of sitting in the back seat of my parents' car at the drive-in theater in Carmel, Indiana, May of 1977, and watching Star Wars, uh, listening to the audio on that tinny uh, speaker <laughs> that would hang in the window. So uh, really, from the very first time I saw the movie, I was totally hooked. I made my parents take me to see it multiple times. Um, even at that point, I was you know roughly four years old, and uh, my entire childhood was spent with every toy I could get my hands on. Uh, as I became a teenager and into my adult years, and really even to this day, uh, I still read every book. Um, and now up with the, the immersive land of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge that's going to be coming to the Disney parks, I think we're all going to kind of take that next step into living our fantasy and uh, you know putting on your Jedi robes and walking into your Star Wars fantasy. So very much looking forward to that. Uh, I know Tom and I have talked extensively about that um, off pod. Over and, you know, and over and over. <laughs> Every chance we get. So exactly. Yeah. And really for this podcast, I mean, my original plan was to start this a little bit later in the year, but with all the information that's been coming out about Galaxy's Edge, it just seemed like it was a custom tailored opportunity to get this up and running. And we're looking forward to taking this journey with with you and all the listeners. So, uh, Tom, I mean, how about you? Where did where did your love for Star Wars come from? 
Well, it's pretty much the same story as you, Rob. Uh, I was a little older than you. Well, I am a little older than you, but a little older than you when I first saw the original uh, Star Wars. Of course, we eventually retitled A New Hope, uh, Episode 4. Uh, but yeah, I went to the theater. My mother took me to the theater, went and saw it, and fell in love with it. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Went back and saw it over a dozen times. Even got to see it at the, uh, the real Grauman's Chinese Theater down in Hollywood at one point, which was amazing. But uh, I just fell in love with it from day one, and I've been I've stuck to it uh, now through all the films, the television shows, now the animated series. Um, it's just really part of my life in many regards. Yeah, when you and I initially met, I believe the first time I actually ever saw your picture, you were wearing Jedi robes, so... Uh, clearly, that was something that that connected with me. So I think for for what we're going to handle next, we're going to take a step into the archives and talk a little bit about what the Jedi archives are and how they influence the the podcast, really. So the history of the Jedi archives, they're located in the Jedi Temple on Coruscant, which is the center of the Republic and eventually became the center of the Empire. And it was uh, thought by many to be the largest known repository of knowledge in the galaxy. Uh, the archives were overseen by the Council of First Knowledge, and that council was led up by an uh, individual called the Caretaker of First Knowledge, who presided over that council. And they met in the Tower of First Knowledge. Now, for anyone who's familiar with the Jedi Temple, uh, there is a central spire, which is the Temple Spire, or some people called it the Tranquility Spire, uh, because that's where you would have seen Yoda meditating in the various Star Wars movies mm -hmm. uh, in the prequels. And then there were four surrounding spires, one of which was the Tower of First Knowledge, where the Council would meet. Additionally, that Council of First Knowledge was really responsible for gathering all the information and advising on the matters which required ancient Jedi wisdom. One of the most commonly uh, thought of would be the curriculum for the Jedi. Additionally, the archives contained thousands of years of historical documents uh, basically spanning the entirety of the Jedi Order. It included maps of the galaxy, hyperspace routes, and information from every branch of science, uh, information on the planets, the zoology, everything that had been collected by the Jedi Order over the thousands of years of their existence. Except for apparently the planet Camino. <laughs> exactly. And I think I think we're going to step into that in a later episode. There's, <laughs> um, you know, obviously we have a, a discussion that's based on canon, uh, but there was a lot of information prior to you know, 2015 when all the legends came out uh, about who was responsible for deleting that information. But I think we can have some discussions around that, who was responsible for it, what other items may have been deleted from the archives. Mm. But we'll get into that in a later episode. Excellent point, though. That's fun. I like that. Look yes, forward to that. Yes, it is. I think we're going to have a lot of opportunities to have some um, highbrow discussions about things that most people would just roll their eyes and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously the people who come and listen to this podcast they're interested in that so that's it's a good place to go so. right right I, half the people are going to be uh, wanting to partake in the conversation and there's a lot of people hopefully that'll give a little bit more thought to star wars when they watch it again absolutely so uh, the majority of the data in the archive was stored in the archive databases, which would be accessed via the data terminals. Uh, this would be similar to what you saw with Obi-Wan Kenobi in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, when he was looking for Kamino, uh, to Tom's earlier point. <laughs> and uh, they were also stored in hollow books, which when you look at that scene, you'll see shelves and shelves of glowing blue 
tablets, essentially, for lack of a better term. Uh, those are hollow books. They were an ancient data storage technology, completely self-contained and incredibly durable. Uh, anyone could interact with those books, and they didn't require any force powers to access those. Uh, and then on top of that, there was a holocron vault within the archives, and that was uh, an area that was only allowed to be accessed by the Jedi Council, so essentially the 12 masters on that Jedi Council. And the holocrons are a more ancient data storage format even than the holobooks. And the special thing about the holocrons is you have to be a force sensitive and a force user to be able to access those. So those would have been divided up into the Jedi holocrons, which are the more common ones that would have been kept in the vault. Generally uh, cube-shaped, emit a blue glow, and are accessible by those with access to the light side of the force. And then the Sith holocrons, which are more pyramid-shaped, tend to have a red glow to them, and you have to have uh, dark side force abilities in order to use those. So... In terms of the holocrons, the important thing about those is that they stored really the most sensitive teachings of the Jedi Order. Each Jedi Master would imbue their knowledge into those, and they could be used as a training uh, medium for future Jedi who have access to those holocrons. Uh, Tom, do you have anything additional you wanted to add on any of the information about the archive itself? Well, I, just an interesting side note is that, um, and this is actually not in the real uh, Jedi Archives, more the uh, movie, the film version of the Jedi Archives, is that they were basically, if you if you remember from the film, going into the archives and uh, looking how it's laid out, well, it's it's actually almost an exact duplicate of a library that's in Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, which uh, actually my wife Michelle and I got to visit at one point, and you walk through it, and you it feels like you're in the Jedi Archives. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, but it's laid out exactly the same way, that, you know, how the uh, Jedi Archives has busts of great Jedi masters masters along the center lining it and the same thing with this library in dublin it's it's really incredible and i highly recommend any star wars fan if you get a chance to go to uh dublin uh go check out trinity college and you'll be amazed at how similar they are see that's a fact i did not know about you i did know that it was uh based on dublin college and and the library there it's that got that same cruciform shape but i did not know that you guys had actually had a chance to visit there yeah, I'll have to send you the pictures sometimes. We've taken some pictures from within it, and it's, it's, it's amazing how similar it looks. It's really cool. That is incredibly cool, and definitely uh, another another time where you feel like you can actually step into that Star Wars universe. Exactly, and they, they even mentioned that we took a tour of it, and they mentioned, I think that there was, uh, Trinity College kind of had a deal with George Lucas, and I don't remember the exact details, but there was something along the lines, because like, hey, you know, you kind of took our, our idea here and put it in the movie, how about, you know, giving us a little money to help us with our programs, and so I think he donated a little to them for the use of their, uh, their likeness of their library. Well, it certainly uh, was something that I'm sure he had the money to do, especially by the time he was done uh, with the original trilogy and, and had stepped into the prequel era. So that's very cool. Very cool additional fact. Now, in terms of the Jedi Temple archives and, and why that kind of spoke to me for this podcast, we are going to strive to be a source of knowledge for the Star Wars universe for our listeners. Uh, we want the listeners to feel empowered to be able to come to us with any questions they may have, any topics they may want us to delve into a little bit more deeply. And so we'll get to that at the end of the show, how to contact us and how to submit those questions or, or show topics. But really, it's going to work in very much the same way as the Jedi would have used that Jedi Temple archive, uh, where they can come in, query the archive, and get the information that they need to proceed. So it, 
seemed like a perfect fit for us and for the podcast and really looking forward to having that interaction with our listeners. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. You're, uh, hey, you're a great repository of knowledge, Star Wars knowledge yourself. So I think you're the perfect person to head up this group and this podcast. And uh, I'm looking forward to one listening to it when I'm not on it, and two, you know, when we, every once in a while I'll be able to come in here with you and talk Star Wars because I'm always looking for an outlet to talk Star Wars. So this will be great. Oh, we certainly do plenty of that, and you're always <laughs> going to have an open invitation. Uh, hopefully, uh, we can make sure that that happens more often than not. Yeah, well, we appreciate that very much. Yeah. Yep, yeah, for sure. So the other uh, the other key aspect of the Jedi Temple archives that most viewers of the series, uh, be it the movies or some of the animated series, would would uh, recognize is that they were run by a human female Jedi Master who went by the name of Jocasta New, and she was the chief librarian of the Temple archives during the prequel era. She would be most notable for having uh, shown up. In that scene that I referred to earlier where Obi-Wan is querying the Temple Archive database uh, for the location of Kamino, And when he was unable to find that location, he had an interaction with Joe Castanu, who basically said, if it's not in our system, then it doesn't exist. Yeah. So, so uh, potentially a Jedi, an example of a Jedi being a little bit blind uh, based on their pride in her case, you know, her pride in, in the repository of knowledge that they had accumulated. And she was certainly... Uh, integral in a lot of the archival discoveries uh, that that entered that were entered into the archive itself. Uh, she was also affectionately referred to as Madame Jocasta. Um, you tend to see this more in the Clone Wars series, specifically in relation to Ahsoka Tano. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Ahsoka is, I'm sure we're going to do an entire other episode specifically on her. I know that she's a favorite of both Tom and myself. Oh, for sure. So uh, we won't go too deep into that right now. I think we're going to save that for a future episode. But uh, obviously, Joe Castanew was a huge part of the Jedi Temple archives. It would be remiss if we did not mention her. Yeah, she's important, and she's one that people can tie into, because just like you were discussing, the scene, uh, I'm sure most people recall that scene when Obi-Wan is is looking for Kamino, and, uh, you know, she's like, well, you know, it's not there, it doesn't exist, you know, how could you think otherwise, or whatever, you know, and that did show a little bit, and you brought it up, it was a good point, Rob, how much uh, the Sith is clouding things, how the Jedi thought that they knew everything, that everything that was going on, but it was obvious. And as the prequels progressed, how little they knew what was going on. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. Um, obviously the Sith was all of the, they were all about their entire strategy for eliminating the Jedi required that they cloud their vision and essentially take away some of their ability to uh, foresee what was coming. And Joe Castanew was certainly not immune to that. So excellent point, Tom. Even Yoda wasn't immune to it. Uh, so. No, <laughs> I think we uh, I think we established during the course of the films that really none of them were. Right. Uh, and the ones who eventually caught on to it, it was far too late. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely looking forward to digging more into uh, a lot of Jedi, who we've mentioned here that we haven't gone into deeper examination of Ahsoka being one of those. And I think we will save those conversations for later episodes, uh, primarily because one of the other reasons, as I mentioned earlier, that we wanted to get this podcast up and running was that there has been a ton of information that's been released over the course of about the past week and a half uh, in regards to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. I know that some Star Wars fans tend to have a bit of a tainted view of uh, Disney and their involvement with the series, but I think it goes without saying that 
in regards to a lot of the newer animated series, especially Star Wars Rebels. Uh, they have done an excellent job with the content. And one of the things that Disney has always done very well at is getting the Star Wars universe into the Disney parks, uh, be it through Star Tours, Jedi Training Academy, and, uh, and now with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, something that many, many Star Wars fans, I think, are waiting with bated breath to get access to. Yeah, we're going to be crying real man tears when we get to first walk into the Millennium Falcon or when we walk through some of these areas and get to try blue or green milk. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. I know I'm seriously looking forward to it. Excellent. And I, I think you speak for all of us, really, Tom. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. <laughs> and I know that you and Michelle have covered a lot of these news stories on your podcast. Um, I think they're going to be all very familiar to you. I know we've talked a lot about them offline. Uh, but really, the latest news dump started back on uh, Wednesday, February 27th, when uh, a lot of the information came out online with the Disneyland cast members finally being given uh, their first look at the costumes they were going to be wearing in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Based on the information that was released, they showed uh, costumes for both the First Order and the Resistance members on the Star Wars Rise of the Resistance ride, uh, which is going to be a trackless ride vehicle and a huge pre-show around that particular ride, uh, simulating uh, the capture of you, the Rebel, uh, by the First Order and subsequent escape, escape from the uh, First Order Star Destroyer. And also the uh, Star Wars Smuggler's Run, which is going to be incredibly amazing, uh, as it's going to give the guests the chance to actually take a seat in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and fly that storied ship uh, as it runs a, I guess, a freight mission for Hondo Onaka. <laughs> Some sort of smuggling mission, freight mission, something along those lines. But it, it it's, again, we were talking about, I was talking about real man tears when we getting to fly the Millennium Falcon. They might as well just sell tissues right outside there because they're going to make a, a, a boatload of money just from all the men that have grown up wanting to fly the Millennium Falcon all their life, getting finally the opportunity to do so. Yeah, and I mean, it's more than just being able to fly it. They have a full-scale model of the Millennium Falcon that the Q winds around. And uh, apparently the way that they've uh, integrated that into the, the landscape of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, it, the way it was done is going to give you opportunities to actually get pictures without uh, crowds in the background with you directly in front of the ship. So I think a lot of people are going to be taking advantage of that mm -hmm. and the ability to step in into the crew quarters, which really is the scene that most people who have watched Star Wars are familiar with. The room where Luke trained with the remote, Chewbacca and R2-D2 playing Dejark, the hollow chess. Um, so that is going to be another place where I'm sure there's going to be plenty of pictures taken. Oh, yeah. That's going to be Instagram heavy there. Uh, there it's going to be crazy to see all the photos coming out uh, when this thing opens up on uh, May 31st. It's uh, super exciting. And I'm looking forward to snapping a few pictures of myself in there pretty soon. <laughs> I, I think we're all going to be uh, taking a couple. Oh, yeah couple fill the whole dark phone <laughs> <laughs> on top of that they're also uh they also released photos of the uh cast what the cast members are going to wear who are going to just kind of be wandering around uh galaxy's edge and uh playing the part of you know the the day-to-day -day folks in the land while it was a limited number of costumes that they released i think we've had some conversation offline that 
the expectation, and I think this was um, verified by D23 last week, uh, that the cast members are going to be able to pick and choose parts of different costumes and kind of make their own uh, character, a little bit of their own backstory. And that's going to kind of help uh, diversify the land and make it feel like you're more in the Star Wars universe. Right, because you're not going to want to go, and we discussed this, like you said, uh, offline here. We were talking about how it, it needs to feel like, you know, if you go to most parks within uh, Disney, yes, the, the the cast members are usually wearing some sort of standard outfit for each attraction, each land, whatever the case may be. But this is going to be so immersive, you don't want everybody looking the same, except for, of course, probably the First Order. Uh, of course, they will look the same for the most part. But you want most of the people that you interact with that are cast members within there to feel like they have lived in Black Spire Outpost for many, many years and, uh, you know, have kind of built a home there. And it, it will just be interesting to see how they mix and match and make these things work. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for the whole thing. Yeah. And obviously this seems to be the the new trend, I guess, in the Disney parks is that they're going for these more immersive lands mm -hmm. uh, where you feel like you're really stepping into into that world. Uh, I know that with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, uh, there are some differences between the Disneyland location and the Walt Disney World location. I believe the Disneyland location has three entrances, if I'm correct. That's correct. Yeah. So, uh, you know, three ent entrances as opposed to two entrances at the Walt Disney World. Um, land, but really what they're trying to do is compress your view. So you're kind of coming through a tunnel and then the land opens up in front of you. And I think it just is going to give that a big reveal to the guests and, and make them feel like they truly are stepping onto that world. It's, it's a very theatrical way of doing it. And my wife uh, brought it up. Michelle brought it up on the show prior. It's pretty similar to what you experience when you walk into uh, Magic Kingdom or Disneyland Park, when you walk uh, past the train station under the tunnel where the train tracks go over and you go in there and you're revealed and there's Main Street and then, of course, the castle. And I think that's pretty much what they're trying to accomplish. The same thing with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Exactly. So that is going to be um, something that I think many of us are looking forward to. Uh, on top of the cast member costume announcements, then that was followed the very next day by a couple of things that were applicable to any Star Wars fan. The first being that the D23, which is um, the Disney fan site, essentially, uh, they released a huge trove of information regarding Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, encompassing details on everything from the two main attractions, which are the Rise of the Resistance and Smuggler's Run that we referred to earlier. Uh, in addition to that, some of the shops and some of the characters that are going to be uh, found within those shops and the food and beverage that's going to be available throughout the land, all of which is going to have an incredibly Star Wars theme to it. So getting into that a little bit, uh, for anyone who might not be familiar with it, uh, the, the two primary shops that I think are going to capture most people's attention are Savi's Lightsaber Workshop mm -hmm. and then uh, the Droid Shop. Mm-hmm. So I know with Savi's workshop, now the thing that's going to be a little bit tricky about that is apparently they're only going to allow 14 uh, people in there at a time working on building their lightsabers. Um, had you heard anything in regards to that, Tom? That's what I've heard. Is something along those lines is definitely going to be limited capacity at, at any one time. Uh, you know, I'm going to imagine, and just to put this onto something, uh, maybe some people will relate this to. Uh, if you uh, go to uh, Universal and go to the Wizarding World, uh, at least I know we have it in, at the Universal in California. I assume we have it also. I've never been to the one in Orlando, but I assume they have it there. And there's the wand shop there, and they they bring in uh, about a dozen people. At 
at a time and they pick one person out to get through the experience of finding their wand and such. And I'm not saying it's going to be exactly like that, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's somewhere kind of similar along those ways where you're, you know, it's so, only so many people are allowed in at a time and you get to go through and pick your things and, and put together your wand, find the right wand for you and, or excuse me, not wand, lightsaber, of course, uh, <laughs> right, for right. you. And uh, it, it wouldn't shock me if it's something along those same lines from what the description is so far. Yeah, I totally agree. And the other thing really to note here for Star Wars fans that have any familiarity with the Disney parks, uh, when you hear build a lightsaber, you're probably thinking of the stations where you're building the telescoping blade kind of clunky (laughs) uh, versions of the lightsaber that are uh, more popular amongst the younger kids. But these are going to be much higher quality. They're going to be more in line with what you might find from a Ultra Sabers or a Saber Forge. Um, I know that the hilts themselves are, again, all metal. Um, They're going to start from around $109 and uh, an additional $49 if you want a blade with it. But then they're going to have additional customization options that could drive the price up even Mm -hmm. higher. And one of the neat little touches that they were going to add with these was each one was going to come with its own kyber crystal, uh, which would light up. And to take it even a step further, one of the items that you were going to be able to buy uh, in one of the other shops throughout the land was uh, Jedi holocrons. And apparently those kyber crystals can actually be placed within the holocrons and activated to deliver messages. Um, So that's going to be a a giant bonus for anyone who's actually uh, invested in one of these lightsabers and then gets the accompanying holocron. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a splurge. Obviously, you look at that price tag on that, but uh, the enjoyment you might get out of it, and if you've ever been looking for something more realistic, now you named a couple companies that uh, we both have uh, purchased our own lightsabers from, but uh, you know, getting them straight from here, and if they're interactive with other items within the park, uh, it's going to be much better and have more value to anybody who's purchasing them, for sure. Yep. You know, on top of that, there's also going to be other shops uh, within Star Wars Galaxy's Edge that are going to be selling other uh, Star Wars related merchandise. Unlike what you may have experienced in the past, none of it's going to be branded Galaxy's Edge. These are items that you would expect to find within the Star Wars universe. So we're talking really high quality uh, Jedi robes, potentially Sith clothing uh, and all the types of accoutrements. I know that they had, I believe, some costumes for kids for if your child wants to look like Rey or Kylo Ren, they're going to have some of that type of gear available in those shops. The other primary shop that was covered was the Droid Workshop, which, again, is going to give people an opportunity to go in and actually take parts off a conveyor belt and build their own custom droid. Tom, I know your wife, Michelle, was excited about one in particular. Oh, yeah. Good old DJ Rex. <laughs> I think we'll be we'll be first in line to pick up one of those for sure. Yeah, and I think we were both uh, chuckling a little bit at the, I believe they called it the galactic Bluetooth connection. So Right, yeah. In a, in a world of hyperspace and light speed, we're apparently still constrained to Bluetooth. <laughs> I love that. That's a good point. <laughs> right, right. So uh, one of the interesting things about the Droid Workshop uh, is that because, you know, Galaxy's Edge is, I believe, 14 acres, it's going to be pretty tightly packed with the guests that are going to want to go in there and experience that land. And I think they were kind of looking at, you know, the concern about if people are going in and building these droids and then putting them on the ground and letting them roll around, they were foreseeing some issues with that. So apparently there's going to be a droid backpack that they come with. Um, Mm. 
so that you can still have them with you. They can still be interacting with things around them, and they, they are supposed to interact with things throughout the land, uh, but you're not putting them on the ground and, and risking them getting crushed. Yeah, or people tripping over them and uh, all sorts of other issues that could come up liability-wise for, for one matter. I'm sure they're not thinking about liability at all. No, <laughs> Disney never does. <laughs> exactly. And actually, uh, droids actually dovetails nicely into our next news topic, which was on Thursday, February 28th, uh, same day as the giant data dump we got on all the details of Galaxy's Edge. There was also an article uh, put out by a writer named Matt Blitz, who is a writer for Popular Mechanics, and he released an article detailing the Disney A1000 Advanced Animatronic, uh, and that impacts Galaxy's Edge as that is the animatronic that is going to be used for the Hondo Onaka character, who is going to uh, be featured in the in the Star Wars Smuggler's Run attraction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would highly recommend that anyone who's interested in looking at the technology behind this land go out and take a look at that article. There is a video there that shows a lot of the information about the development of it. But more importantly, it shows this droid or this uh, animatronic in action and it moves so incredibly lifelike. I think it's going to blow people's minds. Yeah, it's, a, it's a definitely the next level in audio animatronics. Uh, it really is great. And it, it's I love it that it's one of another one of my favorite characters. Uh, Hondo Anaka is it's such a great character that went through both the Clone Wars and then into Star Wars uh, Rebels. And it really it, and really developed as a character. He was an interesting kind of more of a devious guy to begin with. We've talked about this off air, uh, but he developed into, you know, still kind of looking out for himself, but more you know, just kind of a, 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 just a fun guy that's willing to help from time to time, as long as he's getting a little piece of the pie while, while he's at it. And you never would have known it from where he started. So uh, I think he, he definitely has developed as a character in, in surprising ways in a lot of ways. I, and actually, you know, between uh, Hondo Onaka, who, again, some Star Wars fans, as you mentioned, are going to be familiar with them. Those who are pretty much just constrained to knowing information about the Star Wars movies, not so much. Uh, but both Hondo and another character um, who is going to be featured within Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, who is an Athorian named Doak Ondar, or Doc mm-hmm. Ondar, depending on how you pr- pronounce it, um, <laughs> they are going to have a big part in the story of this land. And I'm thinking that we're going to have to address them in an in a upcoming episode very soon. Uh, both them and the world that this uh, Galaxy's Edge takes place in which is um, Black Spire Outpost on the planet of Batu. So that's another location who most Star Wars fans are not going to be familiar with, but we will delve into that a little bit here in the upcoming weeks. Anyway, so you know, a lot of great stuff that's going to be coming out in book-wise, in comic book form, to kind of give you the backstory of uh, Black Spire Outpost, the planet of Batu, and uh, some of these characters you may run into when you're there, which I think is going to be interesting to delve into as well as we lead up to these uh, parks opening. Yeah, I and totally agree. I mean, in the past, Star Wars has been a situation where you could just watch the movies. Uh, if you wanted to branch off into the books or some of the additional shows, then you got that additional level of detail. Uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is going to start to blur those lines, I think, a little bit, because you're going to have guests that go into that land within the Disney parks, and they're going to want to be able to suck every last detail out of it. <laughs> and the way that they're going to be able to do that is by, you know, keeping keeping up with some of the books uh, keeping up with some of the animated shows that are available. And, um, you know, that's really going to kind of plus their experience within Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. 
Yeah, there's no question. I I just love the fact that they're willing to put so much into this backstory. The fact that they've already uh, dropped it just subtly into a couple of the films, into some of the animated stuff. Uh, so you kind of, it, it's already there uh, in within the Star Wars world. You've kind of heard about it a little bit. They know it exists. Uh, so you know, just the fact that they're building this depth of story, I uh, just is going to make it that much better once we actually finally get to enter Black Spire Outpost. Completely agree. And really, all of this information, which at the time, I mean, for one week of Disney news, that is an incredible amount of Star Wars information. Mm. Uh, they did not disappoint. Uh, the very next week, uh, this past week on Thursday, Walt Disney Company had their annual shareholders meeting where it was expected they were going to release the opening date for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge out there in the Disneyland Park. And they did so, uh, with that opening date being May 31st of 2019. Uh, but the thing that they also did that was a bit of a bombshell for those of us who were watching was that they surprised us with an announcement on the opening of uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Walt Disney World Resort as well, which previously had been rumored to be uh, probably late December of this year. But in fact, they're going to be opening it on August 29th of 2019. So uh, that is a significant advancement in the schedule. Um, it did come with a caveat that both lands are going to open in, a, in essentially a phased closure or a phased opening, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, the only ro- the only attraction that's going to be available there on opening is going to be the Star Wars Smugglers Run, the Millennium Falcon attraction, with uh, Phase Two opening coming a few months later, which is going to include that Star Wars Rise of the Resistance attraction. But nonetheless, this is going to be incredible to be able to get access, get into the land, uh, kind of get. Uh, that experience much earlier than we were expecting. Yeah, they could have told me that neither of the attractions were going to be open, and I still would have wanted desperately to get in there just to walk through, like to feel like you're in the galaxy of Star Wars. You're walking through Black Spire Outpost. You're, you're getting to try some, sample some of the food. You're getting to uh, run into different uh, members of the, you know, the Resistance or the First Order or whatever the case may be. I would have been fine with that. So, and I, I and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm looking forward because the Rise of the Resistance attraction does look. Look amazing, and the more I hear about it, the more I'm excited to try it. But really, when this first came out, when they were talking about this, the only thing I really wanted to do was fly the Millennium Falcon. So I'm happy that that's going to be open right away. I'm guessing we're going to have to uh, get security to get you out of the pilot seat. <laughs> there's no question i want to try them all i'm going to go back in i'm going to be a pilot i want to be an engineer i want to be a gunner i want to try it all now i now i do know that when this was announced especially with you uh being out in california and having access to disneyland park that one of the caveats that they also included for disneyland is that in order for guests to get access to star wars galaxy's edge they're going to need to be able to make a reservation for a two-hour window Mm -hmm. Uh, to access the land, which is going to kind of help with some of the crowds. And one of the additional items that they released was that uh, any guests staying at one of the three uh, on-site Disney hotels out there were going to automatically be granted a two-hour window. Uh, I believe you reacted to that pretty quickly. As quickly as I found out about it, I was uh, I was actually monitoring the conference call at the time uh, to get stuff for the Hyperion Adventures podcast to be ready for news for uh, this weekend, this last weekend's show. And they announced, of course, the opening of Star Wars Galaxy. It was like, wow, I was, it's earlier than expected. In, on neither coast did we expect it to be this early. And then just right about the same time, uh, we, I saw that, uh, that 
Disney Parks blog had posted uh, some information about it. So I went to read that as well because I figured that would go more in depth into it. And right in the middle of it was this part of the reservation. Yes, they're going to need a reservation, but also that anyone who is staying on site will automatically get a reservation. So I immediately went to Disneyland.com and checked out and found a way more expensive price that I'd want to pay for a hotel. But for the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, I had to book it. We're going to be there on the opening weekend, and we're very excited about it. I'm a little bit jealous. I mean, we, we're we already planning on going out there in September of this year. I know we've discussed that. Um, I had actually uh, secured a reservation for the Disneyland Hotel um, with the ex- expectation that when they did open the land, there was going to be some additional perks for on-site guests. And so we've got that booked just in case. I know the, the information they've currently released is just through, what is it, June 23rd? That's correct. Okay, so yeah, May 31st through June 23rd is when they're planning on doing these two-hour reservations. But I think the expectation is going to be that this is you know more of a trial run and if if this works for for them for crowd control and making sure that the guests that do get access are able to actually enjoy it without the crowds being uh, completely ridiculous and overwhelming the experience that um, they're going to be applying that m- as more of a long-term measure out in Disneyland. And I was a little bit surprised when they said that the same measure wasn't going to be taking at Walt Disney World. But by the same token, I think that our expectation should be they're going to do that or something similar if it uh, if it works out in the Disneyland trial. Yeah, I think at the Walt Disney World Resort, I mean, they're going to have the benefit of obviously two, three months to look and see what's happening with Disneyland. Again, uh, and we've talked about this on our show, uh, Disneyland, if you don't know the Disneyland Resort versus the Walt Disney World Resort, they are really two different animals as far as the clientele that they see on a day-to-day basis. At the Disneyland Resort, yes, you do get tourists, but mainly it's brought on by annual pass holders and locals who live within the Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, Santa Barbara area. It's such a large uh, population to draw from, whereas the Walt Disney World Resort uh, really doesn't have as many annual pass holders. It's mostly tourists, people that are visiting from out of town that come in there to spend a, five days a week, maybe 10 days out and there. So it's it's really a different animal. So it will be interesting to see wh- how they take what happens at Disneyland and put it in place at the Walt Disney World Resort. Yeah, I I definitely think that no matter what the situation is, they're going to have some plan in place for crowd control. I think that, you know, this land more than many others at Walt Disney World or Disneyland is really kind of a one-off in the sense that you're going to have guests that come and the only thing they're interested in is experiencing Mm -hmm. Galaxy's Edge. Um, You're going to have other guests that are just there for the Disney aspects of it don't really care about Star Wars. I know that on this podcast especially, that's very hard to picture. Um, you know, but but that is going to happen. So they want to make sure that people who get access and are paying for that ticket to the park uh, under the expectation that they're going to have access to Galaxy's Edge, that they actually have a secured window to access that land. And that will help them determine which guests are actually accessing the rest of the park that have no interest in it. It's, it's also the way it's a different animal from Disneyland to the Walt Disney World Resort is that in Disneyland Park itself, uh, it, 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 there's only two parks in the Disneyland Resort. And Disneyland encompasses much of that. So if you're cutting that off or it's too crowded because of Galaxy's Edge there, that's a big problem. Whereas at the Walt Disney World Resort, there are four parks along with a couple water parks and all sorts of resorts, all sorts of things to do. So yes, if Disney Hollywood Studios becomes packed because everybody wants to go to Galaxy's 
Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, that's an issue, of course, but it doesn't necessarily affect Magic Kingdom Park, Epcot, the Animal Kingdom. All those won't be quite as effective. Sure, there'll be a lot of people, if they can't get into the Hollywood Studios, that will bounce off and go into these other parks. But it's not going to be as directly affected as within the park itself, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And the interesting thing is early on in the you know release of information about Galaxy's Edge, especially as it impacts Walt Disney World Resort and the Hollywood Studios, where the land's located there, is that there was speculation that you were going to have guests camping out in the parking lot to be there right at rope drop to be able to rush back and, you know, have first access to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And obviously that was going to pose a lot of different um, logistical issues for the park. And so I, I really think that no matter what comes... Uh, they're going to have a way to ensure that people who, who know in advance that they're going to have access to Galaxy's Edge actually have that access, that the guests that aren't interested in that are not paying for that privilege, uh, and that you know it basically works out to, to keep it from being a PR nightmare for them. Yeah, I, my wife Michelle and I, we had a long discussion about this, and we really feel that, that when the reservation system could possibly continue on and, and actually be added, even though they said they're not going to have it at this point at uh, Disney Hollywood Studios, at the Walt Disney World Resort, that it wouldn't shock us if they did put that in place. And it might act as something along the lines of how you secure Fast Pass Plus options now, where if you're staying on site, you'll have a 60-day window to book your reservation there. If, you know, if you're just an annual pass holder or just have a ticket, you can book it later or you'll, uh, if you're going to book a reservation, you'll have to have some sort of credit card hold on it or something along those lines it wouldn't shock me if that's kind of the way they approach it okay so in addition to galaxy's edge uh really the only remaining news story that i wanted to hit on this week and it's not necessarily so much news as it is uh informational is that uh star wars the clone wars uh has been on netflix and available for streaming for quite some time uh but in looking at that particular series in Netflix, it currently has an expiration date of April 7th of 2019. Mm-hmm. And I know that in the past, um, they've indicated that they were going to no longer carry the series and it's been extended. But I think this is one that any Star Wars fan who has been uh, watching the series for the first time or in the middle of a rewatch may want to take note of because that week on April 11th, there is a Disney shareholder meeting for the Walt Disney, uh, Walt Disney Company. And that particular shareholder meeting is going to be aimed specifically at information related to the new Disney Plus streaming service. And uh, we'll go into a little bit of detail about that and, and what some of the Star Wars specific offerings are going to be uh, with that particular service. But it's looking like the way this aligns is that they are going to plan on, on ending their agreement with Netflix to carry the Clone Wars. And it's probably going to be several months before that's on and uh, available via the Disney Plus service. So definitely, if you were in the middle of a watch or a rewatch, um, apply all due haste and make sure you get that in before <laughs> April 7th. Binge away, my fellow Jedi. Yeah. Binge yeah. away. <laughs> Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Disney Plus streaming service and all of the wonderful content that they're looking uh, to add for Disney fans across the board, there are two primary series that have already been announced. Uh, One of them is a Cassie and Andor series kind of an origin uh, story for him. We're hoping that there's going to be uh, some content related to K2SO. I know that Alan Tudyk has indicated that 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 has certainly been part of the discussion, and I know he is going to be part of the uh, upcoming Star Wars celebration in Chicago uh, coming up in April. So hopefully some of that news gets verified. Mm-hmm. 
as well as a series called The Mandalorian, which is going to be uh, an awesome kind of space western looking series centered around a Mandalorian on the outer reaches of the galaxy and uh, kind of his story set within the Star Wars universe, uh, essentially after the events of The Last Jedi. Yeah, it looks uh, amazing from the the still shots we've seen so far from the sets. Uh, of course, is John Favreau heading it up, and we I've loved a lot of the stuff that John Favreau has done. He's done a great job with us, and uh, they've got great people directing, great people writing. It looks like it's going to be a really interesting series. Uh, the Cassie and Andor series. I mean, one thing I like about these two series is that they they seem totally different in tone. Like you were talking about, the Mandalorian seems very much like a space western in many ways, at least from the shots we've seen. In how it's been described, whereas the Cassian Andor series, it's more about intelligence and espionage and spy thriller, and it just... I love that they're different, but they're all going to be within the same Star Wars galaxy. And it's just, I'm looking, I'm so excited for them. Yeah. And I think we both agree that if they're able to pull off that Cassian Andor series and anything even close to the style that they uh, were able to implement for Rogue One, um, which is certainly one of my top uh, Star Wars movies of all time, I think that that's going to be incredibly successful. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of good content to dig into there. There has also been, and I don't have this confirmed yet, but there's also also been a lot of talk that they may be looking at an Obi-Wan Kenobi series for uh, the Disney Plus streaming service. I'd seen that um, on a couple of sites. I've actually linked all these stories that we're talking about mm-hmm. today uh, on my Facebook and my Twitter page uh, for this show, which I'll give you here shortly. Uh, so please feel free to go out and dig into that if you're at all interested. There's a lot of great information about about anything and everything that a Star Wars fan might be interested in coming up here in 2019. Yeah, lots of good stuff. It's coming out. Like you said, the the news about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge has been fast and furious. Uh, We're just going to have some more stuff coming out here on Disney Plus in about a month from now when they do that investors meeting and they really display what uh, Disney Plus is going to be all about. It wouldn't shock me if we get news of even or confirmation of one of these other uh, Star Wars either live action or animated series that are going to be added to it in that or if not then then possibly Star Wars uh, celebration out in Chicago. It's an exciting time to be a Star Wars fan. That's all there is to it. And incredibly exciting. And the other thing, uh, just while you were talking about uh, Star Wars Celebration coming up here in April, uh, that is the expected time frame that we're looking at to get an actual movie title for Star Wars Episode Nine, mm-hmm. and uh, likely the first trailer for that. So keep an eye out for that as we get into early April. Yeah, there was some footage dropped at the shareholders meeting that was last week. I guess JJ uh, threw some stuff together for the shareholders that were there. We weren't privy to that. I, I've seen some sort of descriptions on what it was uh, online. Uh, nothing really groundbreaking, but just cool always to see some footage from a new Star Wars film that is in, in production. Yep, and I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of people wondering how the the sequel trilogy is going to wrap up. Um, and how that's going to feed into downstream stories that they're going to tell via additional films or uh, even via the Disney Plus streaming service. So I think there's a lot of exciting times ahead as well. And by the way, if you if you haven't if you're not watching the animated shows, if you're not watching Star Wars Resistance, it's getting really really good. They're just about to hit the finale. They started the first part, of the two part finale episode of season one last night. It's really excellent. It's really delving into uh, some of the stuff that we're, we've seen on in the uh, actual motion 
motion pictures kind of on the off, uh, offshoot from it, what was going on uh, across the galaxy while this was happening. Uh, it's really gotten good. There was a lot of character development at the beginning, so you kind of were putting pieces in place, but the, over the last, about the second half of the season, they've really put it together, and they're really more plot-based, and they're really moving the story forward. And I, if you if you started it and just kind of didn't catch your catch you to begin with, I would suggest you get back involved because it's really, really getting good. Yeah, and I think that's true, really, of all the, the Disney animated series uh, that they've put out related to Star Wars. I know Rebels uh, was kind of like that as well. Mm-hmm. I know that, uh, again, they focused a lot in season one on character development, but by the end of season two, it was it was going full bore and there was a lot of great information that tied in in seasons three and four as well so definitely if you are at all interested in star wars if you have not taken the time to check out any of those animated series please do so um you won't feel like you wasted any time and there's just so much incredible work that they have done um i know dave filoni has put a lot of blood sweat and tears into those shows um and he's he's really really done an excellent job yeah, I'm always impressed with everything Filoni does. I love the Clone Wars. I love Rebels. And now, like I said, uh, uh, Resistance is just really taking off. And it, 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 it just happens. It's great again. And, of course, and then we got Clone Wars. You were talking about Clone Wars again. That's the one thing about Disney+. Plus. Clone Wars saved. We're coming back for that wrap-up that final season. Uh, we kind of saw a little bit what happened to it, Ahsoka, but we don't really know the real story. We're looking forward to finding out the real story. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of Star Wars fans who've been waiting for a long time to get some uh, resolution to the Clone Wars series, so we're all looking forward to seeing what they come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exciting stuff, for sure. <laughs> Terrific. I think that's going to wrap it for us for this show. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, excellent discussion. Looking forward to having you on in the future, and uh, we still have so much stuff to explore. Yeah, really appreciate you having me. Thank you. It's an honor that you've invited me on for your debut episode, and I'm excited to hear uh, your future episodes uh, coming up. And uh, if you ever want me, I'm just a, a holocron away. That's right. Terrific. Thanks so much, Tom. Uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, if you want to contact us with any ideas for topics for future shows, questions you'd like answered, or just want to talk Star Wars, we encourage you to contact us. Uh, we also are looking for any feedback or suggestions on how we can make the show better. If you want to reach out to us, we can be reached via email at jtapodcast at gmail.com, on Facebook and Pinterest at Jedi Temple Archives Podcast, and on Twitter and Instagram at JTA Podcast. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Your reviews aren't only going to help us improve the show, but they're going to make it easier for others to find us and to grow our JTA podcast community. And again, we look forward to talking to you guys next week. Thank you, and may the Force be with you.